Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I believe I am carrying The song you just heard is called Release and Be Free, and it was written and performed by Kelly Hunt, a singer and musician based in Lawrence, Kansas. Hunt was first drawn to music at a young age and has been writing songs since she was a teenager. Through the years, she's developed her sound to uniquely fit her while remaining steeped in blues, roots, and gospel traditions. Coming from a musical family, Hunt has learned how to defy the odds and hold on strongly to a lesson her grandmother taught her. If you're going to sing, do it with your whole soul. Hunt's music represents that sentiment. She is currently working on her seventh studio album, and in 2020, she began hosting connection concerts as a way to connect her audience with each other and her music. My name is Brianna Childers. I'm a reporter for the Topeka Capital Journal. This is Music Memos. So I want to start by having you talk about um, your background in music, how you got started, and what kind of musician you are. Well, I started playing piano by ear when I was three, and I was really drawn to the instrument for uh, one main reason at that time. And at that time, believe it or not, we actually lived in Topeka. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so a friend of my parents was refurbishing old pianos, and this was a old player piano that was no longer functional with the player thing that went in it. And they rolled it into our garage. And I was so drawn to it, I couldn't keep my hands off of it. And this was an instrument that was really beat up. So my dad painted the whole piano kind of an antique white and the black keys turquoise blue. So that sealed it for me. I yeah. had to play that thing. So um, I started piano at three. I started lessons, piano lessons at 10, and I had to be talked into it. <laughs> There's a song that I wrote called Queen of the 88s that came out in a live album that talks about that experience. But it really helped me to do that. The other thing that helped along the way was when I was in high school, I had an exceptional music teacher named Don Grant, who just passed away a couple of months ago, who helped me prepare to go to KU as a music major. So I sang in all the choirs, I was in the musicals, I was uh, doing more advanced music theory, that sort of thing. And I majored in music composition at KU and minored in voice. At the same time, I was performing live, and I was writing songs from the time I was just a little kid. Wow. So it was really the songwriting that um, helped me understand this is what I want to do. I don't remember a time when I felt like I was here to do anything else. Between the piano and the songwriting, those were really my big loves. And those, those are the things that have been consistent throughout. I eventually, you know, got up the courage to sing in public yeah. when I was a teenager, and it took a little doing. Um, but I'd say m- most of my career as an adult has been centered around writing almost everything that has been recorded and released, uh, playing piano, singing it, obviously. Mm-hmm. I also I also play guitar, so um, I haven't ever recorded with me playing guitar except for uh, The Beautiful Bones, that CD, and that particular song, I actually played acoustic guitar in it. So. Okay. So I've been I've been touring uh, internationally for over two decades and recording. Uh, the first recording of mine of all my own material um, was released in 1994. Okay, that's awesome. So I have been around the block, and I'm still <laughs> on that block. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. Um, so and tell us um, for the people listening, what kind of musician you are? What kind of musician I am? I. In terms of um, 
what kind of music you play. What kind of music yes. I play? Well, I play, you know, 99% my own songs. Um, and I was so influenced by so many different types of music growing up, everything from gospel to Motown to roots music, um, kind of that Americana style, and R&B. So, you know, when I was younger, hearing every kind of music you can think of, thanks to my parents and my older brother and sister, it was a subliminal process that was almost seeped in through my bones. Yeah. So there's a real roots quality to um, the way I tell a story with a song. Mm-hmm. And it's not contrived, and I don't think about it, but it just kind of naturally has come out that way. So in some circles, it can be hard to pinpoint, you know, where I get airplay, and I'm described as a blues artist mm-hmm. or a Americana artist or, a, you know, who knows, a boogie artist or something. <laughs> but, uh, but that's a natural process, and I'm okay with that. I I just have to embrace who I am as an artist, and a lot of that has to do with my writing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about you growing up or being born in Kansas City. How long did you live there for? Uh, we were in Kansas City, I'd say, what, three three years or so. My parents are both from Kansas City, okay. and um, I still have family there. And then they moved briefly to Topeka for a job that my dad had. And then from there, we moved to Emporia, Kansas, where I grew up. Okay. And so my roots are really deep into Kansas City-style music because that's where my parents are from. And they both still love music and play it all the time in the house. So in our household, we heard everything from, you know, Jay McShann, the piano player from Kansas City, to uh, Big Joe Turner. Uh, I also had, at one time, family in New Orleans, so I seeped in a lot of that. But there's a natural feel to some of that roots Kansas City music that, um, again, it was through osmosis. I soaked it up. And it sounds easy to play until you try to play it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so when we when I recorded the first record out in Los Angeles, um a couple of those songs had that feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I realized at that time, not everybody's familiar with it and um, how lucky I was to have grown up with that. Yeah. Um, so did you ever get to kind of dive into the music scene in Kansas City? I mean, have you played a lot of shows there? What has been your experience with the music scene in Kansas City? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I have played in Kansas City for many, many years, starting back in the 90s. Uh, there used to be a place there called the Grand Emporium that I played. I played um, all of the blues festivals there. Um, I go back. I played uh, the Folly Theater several times, Uptown Theater. So, and we have, like I say, friends and family there. And I've worked with um, several Kansas City musicians, especially horn sections that I brought in for live shows, and um, some singers there that can come and do background singing mm-hmm. for me in live shows. Um, I, I until the pandemic hit, I toured all over the world. So I didn't get to play at, at a certain point. I didn't get to play in Kansas City as often as I did when I was first uh, touring in support of that first record. Right. But I would always come back at least a couple times a year. Um, and personally, I can't wait <laughs> to be able to do that again. And to be able to tour again. Mm-hmm. Who have been some of your biggest um, musical influences um, in terms of national artists and then local musicians? Well, I'd say one of the big influences from this region was Jay McShann on piano. Um, his style, the way his left and right hand worked independently of each other. I saw him several times live. We were on a couple of festivals together, but I never, ever performed with him. Um, Julia Lee, who was a piano player, songwriter, and again, these are because of my parents. Um, And I'd also say that I was really drawn as a young girl to strong singers, it didn't matter if they were male or female. I mean, 
Ray Charles as a singer and a piano player, really drawn to him. James Brown, my first album I ever bought as a kid was a James Brown Prisoner of Love album. What did I know, you know, at fourth grade? And also the gospel roots side of things, Mahalia Jackson from New Orleans, uh, Professor Long here with his piano style and his way of playing with the rhythm on the piano was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But on in other genres, I was very drawn to songwriters, you know, everybody from, you know, Bob Dylan to John Prine to Carole King to somebody that was telling a compelling story when I was a little kid. I just wanted to hear the story. Yeah. And so my influences are kind of far and wide, which I think you'll find with a lot of musicians. Mm -hmm. So I know your mom um, sang jazz and blues, um, Mm -hmm. and then your grandmother, um, New Orleans gospel. Um, How, growing up, how did they influence you, and how were you able to, like, take pieces of their sound and incorporate it into yours, but at the same time, like, make it your own sound? Good question. I think that's the first time I've been asked that in that way. Well done, you. (laughs) Um, Well, starting with my grandmother, the thing that I learned from her without her telling me was that if you are going to sing, the way she put it was, if you're going to sing, do it with your whole soul. It wasn't about perfection or necessarily being trained But if you were there to sing, be fully invested, which she was. And she had a deep appreciation for um, me just playing with wild abandon on the piano when I was a little kid. She would pull up her chair next to the piano when I visited her, and I actually now have her piano in my home, which is really a dear thing. Um, And she would put her hands on her heart close her eyes and sway back and forth when I played and it helped me get over being self-conscious about playing in front of people she was the first person that helped me realize it wasn't about me it was about what I could do to serve with the music it was about others and then my mom who and really inherited that same attitude from her mother, my grandma, when she sang. In her day, she could sing circles around me. And she would sing at the drop of a hat. She was not trained. She didn't play an instrument, but she would break into song. And she sang when she was a younger woman before she was married on a Saturday morning radio show in Kansas City, singing the jazz and blues hits of the day. And I, as a young child, saw her sing with like a big band from Emporia State University and with her friends who were professional musicians. So I got an ear for what sounded good, what came naturally, what felt good, and I could also watch what happened to the audience that was watching her and how she took them someplace and how engrossed they were in her performance, not because she was trying to overperform or oversing, but because she naturally brought her whole self to the song and got lost in that. And then I watched what happened to an audience when it was okay to be vulnerable, okay to just sing the way you sang, and have fun. Having fun was a big quotient with her. Yeah. And still is. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever, with your grandma and mom both, um, being singers, did you ever feel pressure to follow in their footsteps, or was it just like came naturally? I never felt any pressure at all because honestly, when I started out, when I was so young, I was simply drawn to the piano, mm-hmm. and they were encouraging. You know, my mom and dad and siblings were encouraging, but nobody pressured me in any way, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably why I felt so free to pursue what I wanted. Now, they they suggested for a while that I take piano lessons when I was little, and I was like, I don't need to do that. <laughs> because I would hear a song, and I'd go to the piano, and I'd 
piece it out as a young child. Mm -hmm. But finally, when I was 10, um, I, it dawned on me that maybe that might be a good thing. And they took me to several teachers who said, no playing by ear. And my mom was wise enough to say, you know, that's not going to work for her. Because I get so upset by that. And then the one teacher, Mary Burke Norton, who said, okay, here's the deal. We'll do one lesson where you can play whatever you want for me by ear, and we'll look at that. And then the next lesson, you're going to start learning how to read music so that you can you can play anything that you want uh, from the page. And that was it. I said, I'm in. <laughs> What's your preferred method now? Do you still mainly play by ear or do you read music? Um, I do both and because I write most of my own songs a lot of that is by is done without documenting it mm -hmm. on the page I'll record it and eventually you know make a chart for the musicians working with me yeah um, but I'm also I, I do especially in this last year quite a bit of coaching I'm a vocal coach a piano coach songwriting coach so um I work off the page more often so that my uh, students and clients can follow along because not everybody, you know, can play by ear. Right. Yeah. I took piano lessons when I was little, and I always wish that I could have like played by ear, and but uh -huh. just never, <laughs> never was a thing with me. <laughs> but I love piano and I love the sound of it, and it's such a fun instrument to play. It is a fun instrument, and it's so versatile. Yeah. You know, it's a nice core instrument for someone to learn, even if they want to go on and learn other instruments or mm -hmm. sing. It gives you some good basics. Yeah. So you, um, I know that you um, make music, um, you know, going off of your biography with its righteous roots intact um, that also crosses boundaries, um, hasn't, and you have an open-minded exploratory attitude and you take on social and political issues. Um, can you talk a little bit how you developed that sound and how you incorporate that into your songwriting? Well, I think the sound has just developed naturally with, as my skill set has developed over the years, you know, starting at age three and then reading music and then live performance and eventually recording and touring. I think for anybody in any profession they're in, the more experience they have with something and the more open-minded they are about that, the more they're going to grow in that part of their life. So the roots aspect for me, that the way that translates to me is, do I feel this or do I not? And I've stepped away from the idea that it has to be this certain style of music. And I think everybody's different. What moves one may not move somebody else. I have to stay true to when I'm writing a song. When I'm thinking, I don't think, oh, I want to stick to the righteous roots of this, you know. What I want to do is say something the best way I can, do it in a way that I feel moved to do it, that when I listen back, I can be more critical as a songwriter. Does does that style of music work for this? Does Is this uh, bringing up an emotional reaction? And so I there's a fine line, I think, as an artist we all walk, which is we have to have our technical chops together. It's one thing to say, oh, just do what you feel. But if you can't, you don't know how to play the instrument or use your voice or those things. You need to get that technical side down first, and then you can step away and say, okay, now what do I have to offer? And as I've progressed through my career so far, I've realized that the more open-minded I am about how I express myself and also the more uh, true I am to who I am as an artist and not try to be like somebody else, um, the better that translates to the work itself. And it's been interesting when I allowed that to happen, because in the beginning I had many, many years in high school and college where I felt like I had to emulate other artists just mm -hmm. to learn how that works, you know, and do other people's songs, sing a certain way, try to play piano. And I was really just building up my skill set. And when I was willing and ready to say, not I can't keep learning, of course, just like a baseball player who has a coach you know, through their career, 
I al- I always want to expand as a as a player, as a writer, and as a singer. But I have to do it in a way that is authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Why was it important for you to incorporate social and political issues into your songs? I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. something that's maybe a little bit taboo among musicians, or I think it's something that is popping up more in music now, but I think it was something that wasn't as common, you know, just a few years ago. Right. Great question. Well, I think it, I think that what happens in the world around us affects us all. So when I was first starting out, if, if when I go back and listen to that first album, <clears throat> what was affecting me at that time were personal relationships and personal growth and um, some retrospection about what was happening in my life at that time. And that's that's been a thread that's gone throughout. But as I've, um, you know, matured and lived through more things, now as I, uh, I look at the world around me and I see how not just that I'm affected – I'm not there to tell somebody what to think or what to do. I'm not. I'm just there to bring my perspective and my take on what's happening in our world because I realize that it's on my mind. It'll come out almost subliminally mm-hmm. as a songwriter. There, For example, there's a, a song that I wrote a while back that we released as a single, I think, two years ago. Is that right? Two years ago, called Stand Up, Stand on the Side of Love. And I had written it for a benefit for a friend of ours who was uh, going through some cancer treatments and needed some help. So a bunch of musicians, Kansas City musicians, and I got together, did a big concert, raised a bunch of money, had a bunch of fun. And that phrase, Stand Up, Stand on the Side of Love, just stuck with me. So I wrote the song, and I had such a reaction to it that I ended up developing it further. Um, and yeah, there are some pretty direct commentaries on what was happening in the world a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And there are some general things that I think we all experienced around the world. So it was interesting to play that song live in all kinds of settings with all kinds of people with different backgrounds. For the most part... It got an extremely strong positive reaction, and we released it as a single. And we, you know, proceeds from that, and we had some T-shirts made that has a woman standing in a voting booth says "Stand Up," and proceeds from that went to League of Women Voters. I never once in the song said, "Hey, I want you to do this," or "You should vote mm-hmm. for that person." It was commentary, and you know. It isn't my I don't feel like it's my mission as it is in some other people's careers to be doing social commentary with everything I do or political statements. Mm-hmm. But as a woman who has lived through some things and seen uh, how it has affected her life and others around me, I don't I no longer shy away from saying you know what I want to say. And I understand too in live concerts people aren't there to hear me you know, proselytize and tell them what right. to do and give them my political background. They're there to be entertained and hear the music. Mm-hmm. If the song, there's a song uh, recorded a few, few years back on one of the albums called Emerald City. And it was, I, all the metaphors were from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and they were a commentary on the Iraq War. Not once did I say the Iraq War, yeah. or I'm against this, or I'm for this. We had family members who were there fighting and we were brokenhearted and and but i that song came out and you know when we played in europe it was more understood at the core what i was trying to say there wow than it was at home yeah it sounds like a hard rock and you know says i live in the emerald city everything's you know shiny and new and yeah and but i didn't think but it came out in a way that was authentic to me so it's not like every song i put out i'm thinking okay I'm going to talk about this, that, the mm-hmm. other. I have to let that go and see what happens naturally. Right. And I'm very interested in how we're all affected in our world mm-hmm. by what's going on. And sometimes it comes out with a political view. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. 
speaking about what is going on in our world, obviously <laughs> COVID-19 has drastically changed how musicians are able to get out in front of a live audience. Um, but during the pandemic, you started doing um, what you've called connection concerts, and um, you're going to do your 41st one this weekend, correct? That's right. Okay. Um, why was that concept something that you felt was important for you to do, not just for you, but also for your fans? Well, back in March of 2020, gosh, it's hard to imagine. That's almost a year ago now. Oh, my God. I remember we had just gotten news that tour dates for my band, who is based in Chicago, and I were uh, postponed. Mm-hmm. And then as the week went on, they were canceled. And then as the weeks went on, the tour that went throughout the whole year started to be rescheduled. And we could see plainly, I say we, my my uh, husband, business partner and manager, Al Berman, and I've worked together for over 25 years, we could see the writing on the wall very early. Okay, this is what we're facing, and it's gonna happen now. So I just woke up with the idea that I wanted to do a Facebook Live concert. I hadn't done those before last March. And so Saturday, March 14th, I remember that. So about three or four days, I think, prior to that, I said, Al, I'd like to do this, but let's set it up like a concert. Not I'm just going to come on and, you know, play a couple songs and focus on how wigged out we all are. (laughs) But if I can't go do my tours and none of my peers can and national artists are canceling for at least six months at that time Mm -hmm. and possibly a year, our audiences can't go to anything either. So how can we bring, without my band, by myself, like an hour-long concert live online, let people know about it, and just do the best we can, you know? And we talked it through, and we said, okay, here we go. We planned it out, the songs I was going to sing. At that time, all we could do was just put up out in our studio my iPhone, and I played and sang. We ran it through a little PA that was off camera, and that's what we did. We just went live, and I said, hey. (laughs) And then Al got the idea, which I love, to call them connection concerts. We were all feeling disconnected and isolated and scared. And many people were quarantined and sick, and family members were dying. And we thought, okay, the best way I can reach out to people, to fans around the world – Uh, is to be online live and then just leave it up on the page so they can watch it whenever they want Mm -hmm. and make it free. And then if they feel like they want to, uh, you know, set a little ticket price on their own, they can do that through PayPal or Venmo or whatever. But these, it's going to remain free, thinking we do it for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And it was unbelievable. It was overwhelming (laughs) what happened. And technically it wasn't, you know what it is now we've developed it or i should say al has developed it as a four camera shoot it's better lighting we have a backdrop we have sometimes one other musician that can join me um and it sounds better and all those kinds of things but at the beginning i think we had over nine thousand views which just about surprised the heck out of us that's good it was huge and as we as we went along, we began to realize, oh, we're not alone in this. It felt very isolating out in our little studio out in, you know, south of Lawrence, Kansas, where we live. We couldn't go see our family. We couldn't do any of that stuff. And we realized by all the comments, I, I don't know how many comments we had, just hundreds and hundreds, and we still get that every week, saying, I'm by myself in Minnesota. I'm in Vancouver. I'm in Spain. I'm in Dubai. I'm, you know, and everybody was literally in the same boat. So fans that I'd seen in other countries, A, they could tune in and see me, and B, they could understand that um, they were joining other fans and family and friends from all around the Mm -hmm. world and started their own community. 
That's awesome. We never dreamed that that would happen. So now it, what's happened is we made a decision along the way to leave all all of the the concerts up on the the Facebook, the Kelly Hunt Music Facebook page. All of the concerts are free. All of the concerts, we've done some benefit concerts for just food, for the food pantry, because we want to be able to give back. Where any proceeds that come in go straight to them. Mm-hmm. And it has helped us stay in touch with fans. It has helped us, um, helped me as an artist to keep singing and playing and writing and performing every week, which is important to me. Um, stay vocally well. Stay, you know, as a writer on mm-hmm. top of it. And I've taken, you know, a couple weeks off here and there because I needed to. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. And in the spring and summer, we did some outside where I could oh, bring in nice. uh, bassist James mm-hmm. Albright and one of my singers, but we had to be separated. When we play in the studio, we have a, a big acrylic drum shield that's between me and the other musician. Mm-hmm. How long do you plan on doing these for? Well, we originally said to each other and to the people watching, you know, we're going to keep doing these as long as you as long as you want to see them. Thinking, of course, it would not be a year. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't think we've decided yet. Um, I just know that, or I suspect that when we are able to tour in earnest and it's safe for the audience and safe for the artist, I think we're a, a long ways from that mm-hmm. still. And when that does happen. You know, we'll probably still be offering, you know, ticket if somebody wants to see it live and if they want to watch it on do a live stream. Mm-hmm. So that's a developing uh, answer to your question. And, and um, I don't know yet. I don't feel like there is a finish line in sight. No, well, it's hard to put an end date on things <laughs> yeah. when we don't have an end date on this pandemic. So <laughs> exactly right. That's fair. Yeah. Um, so you're working on your seventh studio album right now. Um, what is the do you have a title for that album yet? We don't have a title yet because we are still in the processing of uh, picking the specific songs. And I'm still uh, writing. Okay. So one thing about this concert coming up uh, on February 20th, we're calling it Unreleased. And I'm going to be doing all songs that they may have been recorded, but they're not released yet, or they haven't been recorded yet, that are being considered for the new album. Okay. And there may be more unreleased concerts coming up. So we're, we're, in, we're in process with it. And we have a core group of songs that we feel pretty strongly about, um, but the final decisions haven't been made yet. Okay, gotcha. Um, What is next for you once, you know, you're obviously in the process of creating this album, but um, after that, do you have any other future projects that you would like to share about? Well, um, yes, actually I do. I've I've been approached about... um, a play called Rooted by uh, a playwright who actually now is based in Topeka, Marsha Spolska. And several years ago, she wrote a play that was to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the Greensburg tornado. And I was brought on as music director. I performed music live in it and directed a, uh, a chorus there. Well, that play is being considered for the Inge Festival, um, the uh, Inch Festival that takes place in southern Kansas. It's a national festival. Right now, it's all being done virtually. So I've been approached about uh, reviving that again and doing that for them. That wouldn't be until this, not this summer, but the following mm-hmm. summer. Um, I'm also uh, obviously working on the seventh album. I'm writing, um, not continually, but on a regular basis, uh, just to see you know what happens from that point on and i also do some other um collaborating with other artists where um for example duke robillard who's a a well-known grammy award winning guitarist um is based out of uh on the east coast he's had me be part of a couple of his records and i don't i don't know that he and i will collaborate again but other artists have um 
approached me about the possibility of not necessarily writing for them, although I did some of that for Duke, but be, you know, playing piano or singing on their projects. So I'm open to what's next. I'm grateful to be busy. I'm extremely grateful to look back on this last year and say, oh, look what happened. Yeah. Uh, when it began, you know, in a fear-filled filled way uh, of the unknown and, you know, when somebody's livelihood and living is suddenly snatched away from them in the matter of hours, I never would have dreamed that the, the this year would have been so uplifting, so much fun, uh, and, you know, go forward in the way it has. I'm really looking forward to hopefully getting back together with my band, but they're in Chicago, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Blaze Meza, host of Our City here. Listen every week as I bring you local government stories that you need to know. When was the last time you heard from the Shawnee County Commission or Topeka City Council? Luckily for you, I hear from them weekly. Listen every week as I bring you the voices of your locally elected officials. That's Our City, wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes out every Monday. So this is the portion of the podcast where we're going to insert some of a couple of your songs um, that you um, have created. Um, but we're going to have you explain um, the songwriting process behind those um, and any other type of process that went into creating that song that you want to talk about. Um, but let's start with um, The Beautiful Bones. What um, album is that on um, and um, what was the songwriting process? Okay, great. Uh, the beautiful, the song "The Beautiful Bones" is the title song for the album "The Beautiful Bones," and just uh, weeks before we were getting ready to go to Nashville to sixteen ten recording studio to make the record, um, we still didn't have a working title for it yet. We always record more songs than we need, pick what we think is the best work, and see what you know. Uh, fits together the best but uh, a few weeks before that I was surprised at Christmas by my husband Al and two friends Jane and Lee with an acoustic guitar um, that I just loved I didn't know I was going to get it it's a beautiful Taylor guitar and one really cold winter morning I was sitting in my kitchen with this playing this guitar and looking out our window and at the snow and i think it was about 14 degrees which would seem you know balmy right now oh yeah Uh, it's like beach weather (laughs) it's like let's go swimming (laughs) and looking at the bare branches of the big silver maple tree that's outside of our window and i literally was just playing this guitar kind of getting used to it and getting next to it and this song the beautiful bones started to write itself Truth is, the song was probably written in about 20 minutes. Wow. And the imagery that I was seeing of, of the, what I call the bones of the branches and the tree, um, was what sparked that. And then it was also an underlying uh, thought, almost subconscious thought, of concern for our world with climate change and how are we taking care of our uh, planet and Al had been out, I don't know if he, maybe shoveling snow. When he walked back in, I said, hey, um, listen to this. And I just sat, he just sat in the kitchen. I played the song to him, and we both just said, oh, that's, there's our title song. And the idea, uh, the threads of thought around that, you know, how can we take care, better care of each other, our world, um, what's next for us, how can we appreciate what we have, became the theme for the album. And that's um, the first time it's happened that way. That's awesome. And, when we, and I, I have one more thing to tell you that's kind of fun. When we went into the studio to record it, um, well, actually, that's about a different song. I'll save that. I'll save that for the next thing. I'll just, I'll just say it was really fun to, to take that particular guitar to Nashville, take it into the studio, and be the one that actually played that on the record, which right. I had, I had only played piano up to that point. Right. So. 
and our fear When worry gathers to us Like broken souvenirs The beautiful bones Of the world we live in song um that we're going to play is um called release and be free um so what um album is that from and um what was the process behind that that is also from the beautiful bones album and that song i think was really informed stylistically and specifically by the music that i heard my grandmother sing uh gospel older style gospel And it was also, I think, informed by the idea of one way we can take care of ourselves is to let go of what isn't serving us anymore. And instead of saying that in that way, I just said it in a more direct gospel-style way. And the singing, um, I, I had sung that song several times live. I thought I had it down. I thought I knew what I was doing. And I went in the studio, and Al and I have co-produced four of the six releases, six albums that are out. We work really well in the studio together. We had a wonderful engineer, Michael Esser, that 
is turned into one of our favorite engineers. And so we each have our own strengths about the production side of what we do and the sounds we want to get. And so he was in the control room with the engineer and I was in the vocal room. And we had already we had already recorded the music bed to it, and we recorded it live with all the players there. And I sang the song, and I felt good about it. And the song was over, and in my ears or it, through the earphones, I hear silence. Not that that's a bad thing; it just means we need to give her a second, you know. And I said, "Well, what'd you think?" And Al said, in a very measured, compassionate way. <laughs> He said, you know, that was good. I think you can do better. But he wasn't commenting on the technical side of my voice. He said, I didn't feel it. And I went, what? You know, but I know I've worked with him long enough to know that if he is saying that, there's something to it. And I need to step back check my ego i need to process it think about it for a minute and give it another go and think about what he's saying and i said okay let me just sit with that a minute and i said okay let's give it another let's give it another try and that was the time that i let go of trying to sing something perfectly trying to use the trained voice and just feel it and i could feel my grandmother saying you sing with your whole soul, or you shut your mouth. Wow. And I went, oh, that's right. He's right. And I went, okay. So I was too inside the song. I'd written it. I I wasn't feeling it like I did when I first wrote it. Mm-hmm. They played it again. I sang the bejeebus out of it, not worrying if my voice cracked or if I hit a wrong note. I just went for it. The melody actually changed. At the beginning of the track, when I sing I Believe, and my voice just goes way up there in full, full uh, chess voice. I'd never done that with that song before. And my hair stood on end. <laughs> and when I was done, I had tears in my eyes. I went, oh, my God. And it when that was finished, that's the take we kept. And we brought in the McCrary sisters to sing backgrounds on it the next day, who are well-known gospel. Their their father was one of the original founding members of an old gospel group called the Fairfield Four. If you've ever seen the movie, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And the Grave Diggers, their dad is one of the Grave Diggers singing. Okay. And the McCrary sisters just happened to be friends with the drummer, a friend of ours, Brian Owens, who's played on several records there, and had just come off tour. He'd come off tour with them. And they lived in Nashville. And I just said out loud, God, wouldn't it be great to get the McCrary sisters? <laughs> and he said, oh, hey, uh, let me just give him a call. <laughs> and they wanted to hear the music. They wanted to kind of get next to what I do to make sure it was a good match. Oh, they showed up the next day. Wow. And you'll hear them on this track and we felt like musically we had known each other for a long time and we just met that day and they came on because of the style of music was and they understood what my approach was wasn't controlled that controlled kind of nashville pop sound they went oh girl we're singing today (laughs) and it was fun and it was a joy that's awesome i believe
Afraid. 